Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, before we dive in today, I want to recommend another podcast to y'all from Wonder Media Network called Women Belong in the House. They've just released a limited miniseries aptly titled Women Belong in the White House. As the first female Black and Asian Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris is redefining the political sphere. Her achievement represents hope, affirmation, and the shattering of a glass ceiling that has kept mostly white men at the high ranks of American politics. Host Jenny Kaplan explores Kamala Harris's historic path to the White House, from her journey as District Attorney to California Attorney General to Senator and finally Vice President of the United States. Jenny speaks exclusively with women experts and elected officials to discuss how Kamala Harris's win disrupts the status quo and what this could mean for the future of women in politics. Listen and subscribe to Women Belong in the House wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Ravi, what's been going on this week? Well, excited to report on Biden's first week as president of the United States, and he's really hit the ground running, uh, to use an overused cliche. He's been really focused on COVID, which is really refreshing, and they've been putting out continuous information about how they're shifting to a more aggressive response to COVID. And, you know, some of the big headlines this week are Biden had originally said he wants to get to 100 million vaccinated in his first 100 days. And he's now up that to at least 1.5 million vaccinations a day is the goal now. Um, And that's what they're shooting for. Uh, He's also announced a few other measures, uh, like a mask mandate on federal property, a ban to certain countries that are very high risk COVID-wise, South Africa being one of them. And just in general, uh, it seems like the government is consolidating uh, decision-making and uh, just taking this very seriously. You get the sense that this is an administration that's waking up every single day with with COVID as the top priority. Yeah, it really, it feels like someone's in charge. And you know what I've been thinking about uh, ever since inauguration is I remember learning in the army that there's a special feeling that goes with being led well. Like whether it's your boss at work, your your mom or your dad, like whoever it is, like you know when you're led well. And I remember in the army, like when I was serving under a good leader, which was often, but not always, there is a reassurance and a comfort and an excitement about being led well. You know, one of the big criticisms we had of the previous administration was that the buck never seemed to stop in the Oval Office. And you get the sense that Biden's waking up every single day just saying, this is my responsibility. There, there are no errant tweets attacking state officials. You know, there, there aren't international fights over 
who started the virus, you know, which is now, uh, you know, over a year now since the virus was first discovered, like it, you know, it's such a totally pointless exercise when you're in the middle of it, you know, all those things are gone. And what we're getting now are press releases, social media updates, et cetera, just about, okay, we're securing this amount of vaccine. Uh, We're working with states to try to get it out as fast as possible. We're trying to coordinate the response. We're updating health guidance. Like it just feels right. I agree with you. It reminds me of what President Obama said in the toward the end of the campaign when he was campaigning for the ticket. And he said, you know, you won't have to wake up every day and think about Joe and Kamala. Like they'll just be doing their jobs. And that's what's happening. And it is, like I said, just deeply reassuring. The tweet yesterday from Chief of Staff Ron Klain stood out to me as an example of why this administration is different is that he tweeted out uh, something like, we've secured X amount of additional vaccines. Now the hard part is just making sure that we're able to distribute it. And what I found interesting, which it shouldn't be about that tweet, is that it wasn't just the celebration, oh, look, we're awesome. Like now, if you don't deliver this, it's on you, is more like now we have to figure this out together, um, this idea that we have a shared responsibility. Acknowledging that it's hard. Yeah. You know, just being like, and now it's going to get harder. That's leveling with people. That's leadership. Yeah. Speaking of leadership, we have some confirmations. Uh, We've got some swift confirmations of the Secretary of Treasury, State, Defense, and Intelligence. And it looks like, and this is partially, if not completely, a result of the Georgia elections, things are moving relatively smoothly to get people confirmed. But there are a decent amount of Republicans voting for these nominees, which shows that, you know, all hope isn't lost. Biden has issued a a series of executive orders, mostly on his first day, but they've been trickling out ever since. And just to give, you know, this is partially to celebrate, partially to inform listeners, but just to give you a sense of why elections matter, here are some of these executive orders. um, Well, and let let me point out, like, these are executive orders. This is stuff that even if we had not won the Georgia Senate races, this still would have happened. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, some of these are rejoining the Paris Agreement for climate change, ending the Muslim ban, requiring mask wearing on federal property, coordinating a government-wide COVID response, incorporating undocumented immigrants into the census, canceling the Keystone XL pipeline, pulling funding from the border wall, assisting veterans with debt, reversing the transgender military ban and ending reliance on, on private prisons. Those are just some of them. Jason, like any of those stand out to you? I know there's just so much there stand out to you where you're just like, wow, this is this is amazing. The one actually to me that that jumped out was incorporating undocumented immigrants into the census because it's actually not that revolutionary of an idea. It's actually the way we usually do things. And what it does is it says, okay, we need to actually know how many people, human beings, live in an area to know like representation and to know like how much is needed to build highways there and for federal services of all kinds. And I mean, let's not pretend that these human beings don't exist, like a really revolutionary idea like that. And, you know, we just had a big fight over, uh, you know, how to do representation in Missouri. And unfortunately, a ballot initiative passed that that goes backwards on this sort of thing. So it's a really big deal uh, because it is just not that revolutionary. It's just going back to the way this is usually done, but has an enormous impact. Totally agree. One that I that I thought was interesting here was assisting veterans with their debt, which is just the sense that, you know, there's not there's not one party here that has a monopoly on patriotism. And and obviously we've spent 
past six months talking about how maybe there's one party that thinks it has a monopoly on patriotism, but it's the opposite. And I think this is a good example of like, we love to wave the flag sometimes, but we don't think about the consequences of quote unquote, defending our freedom. And so we send people off to fight wars like you, like my brother. And then when people get back, like we don't do the greatest job of taking care of them. And that needs to be a bipartisan effort. Well, it's it's really meaningful that actions were taken for veterans in the initial executive orders, right? And I and I do think it just goes back to uh, the work that the Dr. Biden did uh, with Michelle Obama, right? For military families, like she's, I've taken her around and toured, you know, taken her on a tour of, of uh, the nonprofit that I run. She's deeply knowledgeable about this stuff, and so. It matters, like I was saying throughout the campaign, that it matters to have a military family as the first family. And this is a good example of that. Yeah. And one other that that sticks, stands out to me is this ending the reliance on private prisons, which uh, is related to what's happening at the border with you know all the terrible things we've done to separate families, but also is something that even came up in, in our podcast with my brother, who is fairly libertarian, but admitted that he is against private prisons because in his words, you know, when you take away somebody's liberty, that's government at, at its most powerful uh, and most dangerous. And we don't want to hand over that responsibility to the private sector. Uh, and so I think that's a, that was such a, a needed step. And, and honestly, like, I can't believe the federal government was ever in the business of, of, of working with private prisons. Let me. Can I tell a, a private prison story real quick that I can't remember if I've told on the spot before, but it's just to me, it's like the ultimate, uh, like taking the the private prison idea and like the privatization of everything to its logical conclusion and how stupid it is. So first of all, like like you said, the idea that private prisons are, even exist is horrendous. But here here's where it ends up going. I remember when I was in the state legislature. There were always, and there still are always, uh, attempts to do carve-outs. And carve-outs are just, hey, you know, there's this law, there's this rule that exists. We're going to go ahead and exempt this industry from this. And this is done constantly, and it's almost always pushed by Republicans, not exclusively, but almost always like, hey, to be pro-business, we're going to say that, uh, you know, the best-known example is gun manufacturers, they're carved out from regular civil liability, like that sort of thing. So... The other piece of context you, you have to know is that this was in my first term in the House, which meant it was a Republican majority, but it was the closest Republican majority that I ever saw. So it was 89 to 74. So every once in a while, we we had a chance to like win an amendment, but we almost never won on a bill. And this is one where we actually just barely won, because what it was is the dude got up and his bill was to exempt private prison companies from the state's law that said that you had to report an escape within 24 hours. <laughs> this was a real thing that was proposed that like a lot of people voted for. Unbelievable. And and his his rationale was, you know, they don't have as much staff, they don't have as much resources. It's difficult for them to do this as quickly as regular prisons. And of course, a bunch of us were getting up and we were like, well then maybe they shouldn't be in the fucking prison business. <laughs> um so, you know, that's where this stuff eventually goes, right? Is like, well, you know, I mean, it's not fair to make the private prisons report escapes of prisoners as fast as regular prisons. Yeah. And anyway, that got defeated, a rare defeat of a bill on the floor. I mean, just barely. Thank God. Uh, and, you know, if you've ever spent a lot of time in certain pockets of America, you know, Deep South being uh, one area where this is a particular problem where I spent about six years of my life, you have a combination of elected judges 
in private prisons and just a shitload of racism. And so what you wind up having is a an incentive, in some cases, for the judges to send people, as many people as possible prisons. And there's documented cases of quotas, which is unbelievable, where because you have to meet certain job requirements in your town, you want to send as many people as possible to prison because it's an industry. It's terrible. Uh, it needs to be stopped. Uh, and I'm glad the Biden administration took this step. It's a good example for people listening when you're having these arguments uh, with you know, family members or whoever about this idea of regulating industry. Like, why does it make sense to regulate certain industries? And you go back to the idea of there are certain functions that work better when the government either does it or has a somewhat heavy hand because the profit motivation is so strong. And I would analogize this to, you know, when like orthopedic surgeons also own MRI testing centers, right? It's like, yeah, obviously they're incentivized to order all sorts of MRIs that maybe are needed and maybe are not. But every time they send you over for a test, it's money in their pocket coming from your insurance company, which obviously raises the cost of everything. Well, that's a bit of a market failure, just like having elected judges and private prisons is a market failure. As a kid, I used to argue in my neighborhood that uh, my dentist was doing that when it came to wisdom teeth removal. Uh, and I just never got my wisdom teeth removed. Uh, and I never had a consequence for it. Now, listeners, <laughs> don't follow my my example. I have never Googled this. I have no idea whether it's evidence-based. But that's the kind of skeptical lunatic that I was as a kid. Well, okay, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give some credence to, to your skepticism, which is... I remember when I first uh, went to college and I moved to DC, I lived in an apartment building that had a dentist on the first floor. And then I had a dentist back home, like a real young guy. And this dentist back home, had I had never had a cavity. And all of a sudden, this dentist I had back home at the time had drilled on like three or four teeth, or he drilled on two. And he was like, I'll get the next two next time. You have, you have four cavities in here. We'll get the next two next time. I was like, all right. Then I go out and pretty soon the army says, Hey, you need a dental exam. And I was like, Oh, okay. There's a dentist downstairs. So I go downstairs and the dentist downstairs was like an older guy who'd been in practice a long time. And he does a dental exam and he's like, you're all good. And I was like, you didn't find the two cavities. He's like, what two cavities? Oh my God. And I tell him the story and he says, your dentist back home. Is he like in his thirties, young guy, late twenties, early thirties. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, yeah, that's normal. He's building this practice. You probably didn't need any. Oh my God. Well, uh, listeners, if our producer Edie lets us, keep this whole dentist thing in. Um, send us a voicemail if you're a dentist, because I'm sure just by the law of statistics, we have some dentists out there. And defend yourself, Let me, let me just say, let me say I, I, go to, I go to Dr. Jared Williams here in Kansas City, and he's fantastic. I'm, a, I'm not an anti-dentite. I just, I apparently had a bad dentist at one point. Rounding out the news of the week, Monday evening, McConnell relented and agreed to a power sharing agreement with uh, the Democrats, which basically means we have the majority. It's a little complicated and as you've probably heard us say before, neither of us really truly understand how the Senate works. I'm not sure if the Senate understands how the Senate works. Uh, but one notable part of this is that basically McConnell wanted the Democrats to agree not to remove the filibuster in exchange for basically giving us our Democratic majority uh, that the voters not only gave us, like it's not even just a majority. I think we have tens of millions of more votes in these elections than they do. But never mind that. They wanted a, a promise that we wouldn't get rid of the filibuster. We didn't give it to them, but notably, Senators Manchin and Cinema both made statements reiterating that they would preserve the filibuster. Uh, and Manchin said, in this two-year term of the Senate, which I found interesting, 
but there were other notable Democrats who made statements that I found reassuring. One was John Tester, who's generally been a skeptic of removing the filibuster. And he said, I feel pretty damn strongly, meaning about keeping the filibuster. But I'll also tell you this. I'm here to get things done. If all that happens is filibuster after filibuster, roadblock after roadblock, then my opinion may change. I would have to say kudos to you, John Tester. I thought that was a really good statement and, and puts Republicans on notice. Um, but should this concern us, Jason, that we still have two Democratic senators who won't remove the filibuster, which means a lot of the things we care about, a lot of things you and Tubbs and all of us talked about a couple of weeks ago, are going to be really hard to accomplish with the filibuster in place. Yeah, uh, it concerns me. And it's for the very reason that you've brought up and that we've been talking about the last few episodes, which is there's really important shit that has to get done. Like it's going to affect people's lives, uh, everything from the Voting Rights Act to common sense gun legislation. I mean, there's so many things that, you know, this is this is the opportunity to do it. And then the second reason is a political one, which is we have to deliver some things. And if we don't deliver some things, there will be a political consequence for that. And yeah, like they're wrong. Like, yeah, I, I don't really know Joe Manchin very well. I, I know Senator Cinema uh, decently well. They're wrong. Like, and I would tell her that. Yeah, they're just wrong. And, and we have to do it. I'm, I haven't given up hope uh, because I do think that if there ever was a, a time in our politics that allows people to change their minds, it's the current environment that we're in right now. I think we we just came from a situation where the president changed his mind, like between one tweet to the next on the same day. Or just forgot what his previous positions were and and certainly didn't pay the kind of political costs we would expect from that. And that entire party seems to have shifted a lot um, on a lot of issues over time. So I think and just like for for decent for, for reasons of intellectual integrity, it's important to just take into account new evidence as it comes. And I think the important part of new evidence that's going to sway mansion and cinema to the extent there's any is going to be attempted passage of bills that they care about that are being stymied by Republicans over and over again. So I think listeners, I would be prepared to see a lot of good legislation die before we can change the filibuster. But there's this thing called reconciliation, which I don't truly understand. But from what I understand, if there are certain things that are strictly budgetary, so like expanding funding for COVID or for healthcare, et cetera, those things can pass just on a, on a 51 vote margin. Where it's things that are not strictly budgetary, like a Voting Rights Act or adding D.C. Um, as a state would not pass muster on that. I don't completely understand the distinction in some cases, but that seems at least reason for hope. There are some things that will still get done, but there are just so many really important things. I mean, I just go back to President Obama at John Lewis's funeral. You want to honor John? Let's honor him by revitalizing the law that he was willing to die for. John wouldn't want us to stop there, trying to get back to where we already were. Once we pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, we should keep marching. He talked about the Voting Rights Act and all the things that needed to be done. And he said, and if that means getting rid of the filibuster, then that's what we'll have to do. And he was completely right. And that none of that has changed. Honestly, at this point, if you are opposed to getting rid of the filibuster, you are functionally opposed to the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And that's totally unacceptable as a member of this party. So if you're anything like me, listeners, you come from a family and maybe in a culture or a neighborhood where asking for mental health help is just taboo. BetterHelp makes it as easy as possible to just take that critical step 
and get professional counseling. I'm obviously very open about the fact that I'm a big believer in therapy. It's been a big part of my life. And I decided to talk to my person because I'm working on this book that has a lot of heavy material. And I just wrote an entire chapter about Afghanistan. And like, it was sort of like I was half in Afghanistan and and half here uh, for about a week. And it just made for a little bit of a difficult week from a mental health perspective. It wasn't, you know, tragic. I wasn't careening. It was just uncomfortable. And so I talked to somebody. So you don't need some big event or some big reason. You just, all you need is to say, you know what? I think I might feel better if I did this. Yeah. And I'll mention the obvious, which is in this era of COVID, it's great to use a service where you don't have to necessarily show up to an office. And I know a lot of majority 54 listeners come from rural areas. You know, the nearest office uh, might not be that close. And so they have licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma. And you could check out testimonials on their site. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment and start communicating in under 48 hours. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com m54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com m54. Ravi, I know that this next ad is particularly apt and you must be using the product because you have your full on surfer haircut. Like I I am fighting the urge to call you point break every time we record an episode. Yeah. I mean, if you too want thick, amazing surfer hair, uh, you got to try this product, Nutrafol. Uh, 80 million men and women in the US experience thinning hair, uh, yet it's not openly talked about, which can make going through it feel scary and stressful. uh, And that just adds to the problem. Control isn't given, it's taken. Make the next few months your time to grow thicker, fuller, healthier hair. Uh, In a time when self-care is more important than ever, every day is an opportunity to skip damaging styling tools and chemicals and focus on better hair growth from within. Nutrafol is formulated with potent botanicals to help you grow hair as strong as you are. And you're pretty strong. And it's physician formulated to be 100% drug-free. Visit Nutrafol.com and take their hair wellness quiz for customized product recommendations that put the power to grow thicker, stronger hair back into your hands. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and using promo code M54 to get 20% off. This is their best offer available anywhere. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get 20% off at Nutrafol.com, promo code M54. Their best offer anywhere, 20% off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code M54, for hair as strong as you are. Quarantine Corner. Look, I'm not going to gloat about the outcome of the AFC Championship because, you know, I was you three years ago. Um, and I know what it feels like to have your team come so close and then lose. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited for the Bills. But anyway, I'm not going to gloat about it. Instead, I'm just going to talk about the experience of I actually went to that game. It, and it felt very 2019-ish. Uh, you know, like now we were wearing masks and it was socially distanced and they, they only, you know, let like 20%. Yeah. And let me, they had people- let's pause on that for a second. Just so listeners know, like you are among the most careful people I know when it comes to COVID. And so like, this wasn't like a small decision for you. Like you, you went about it in a safe way and it was outside. I just want to point that out. Cause I don't want people to think like, you're just like hanging out in stadiums all the time, you know? 
No, no, I appreciate it. And also, you know, it was something that, so my brother had brought up the idea of going to me and, and I was like kind of on the fence. And then a couple of days later, uh, there was an article in the Kansas City Star about the fact that the Chiefs had successfully gone the entire season without a single transmission of COVID while having 20% fans the entire time because of their protocols. And I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm sold. And so I went, It was, we messed up. It was me and my brother, a buddy from college, and then my buddy Brian, who I run Veterans Community Project with. And Brian is like, he's like this champion tailgater. Like he's always been a tailgate guy. And of course he hasn't been able to do it in a long time. And so the four of us went and we were like, cause this is Kansas city. So we're crazy. So they're allowing tailgating as well. So, but it's all distanced. And so we went and we messed up and we said, let's go ahead and set up a grill. And we did, we like ate food in a parking lot for five hours in the cold. And he set up his TV and we watched the NFC championship game. And, uh, and we like played bags, you know, it was, like a little bit like real life. And then we went into the stadium and like it's Kansas city. So chiefs fans can get loud even when there's five of them. And, uh, it was incredible, man. Got to watch the trophy presentation. I ate some nachos, you know, other than wearing a mask and people going up and down the aisle and like, you know, getting mad at anybody who wasn't wearing their mask, which was great. It felt a lot like 2019 and it made me just excited about the fact that so much progress is being made on vaccines and and that there's sort of a light at the end of the tunnel now. And it just, oh man, it felt really good. Also, we are going to the Super Bowl again. So that was a bit of a cherry on top. Yeah. Well, congratulations. And if we're going to lose, I'd rather lose decisively because the Bills have had such a tragic history of very strange and disappointing losses like the Music City Miracle on the last kickoff or the Scott Norwood wide, wide right. Like, I don't talk about this a lot publicly, but I watch very little of actual Bills games because I care so much. So actually, once you scored the first touchdown, you and I had the same reaction with with opposite valence to it, which is I pretty much knew we were going to lose that game pretty early in the second quarter just because we couldn't stop you guys. And Allen clearly seemed off. And so I did not watch the second half of the game. I, I'm staying in an Airstream, which is my real quarantine corner update. I moved into it this weekend. It's this really cool Airstream. And if you follow me on Instagram, I put a lot of content on it. It's just a beautifully done Airstream by the ocean. And so I just kind of came back to my Airstream and just kind of chilled out knowing that the the Bills had lost. I didn't even check the score till the next morning because I just knew what went down. Really? Yeah. I hope, I don't know if it's any consolation, but now the Chiefs get to go to the Super Bowl and avenge the Bills by beating Tom Brady. This week in misinformation, it's kind of an exciting week for this topic just because we are in charge, so it feels a little bit less desperate uh, and and dark. But uh, we have a new structure, I think, of the misinformation economy. Same actors, same tactics, etc., but... Now that the Biden administration's underway, the misinformation is now trickling out or flooding out as a way to delegitimize him from day one and build a narrative that the world is is kind of going to hell in Biden's administration. And it's gotten almost comically so. Like he's been president for now a week as we record this podcast. And there are things flying all over the internet saying that. Basically, the country has gone to hell in, in a couple of days. And there is you know, one Facebook post in, in, that I was just looking at from PolitiFact, uh, where they just kind of fact check this 
Facebook post, which goes through like 10 different things that have now gone to hell uh, in one week. You know, Antifa's taken over, gas prices are up. Biden made troops sleep on the floor of a parking garage. We're losing jobs. He wants to surrender to Iran. And I just want to prepare listeners for this. And we want to just kind of kick off the Biden era by saying that this is going to be a mainstay for you. And, and I just wanted to open up the discussion as to like how you handle these kinds of claims. Um, do you have any idea, Jason? Well, I think one thing that is at least good is that we had to work a little harder to figure out exactly what the viral misinformation is because President Trump doesn't have a Twitter account anymore. So I, that I I hope is a, is a reason for some optimism. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the way to handle it is is to focus on the larger policy areas. But I do think you got to defend it. So and this, by the way, was a private citizen's Facebook account, and it just went viral because there's such a thirst out there for bullshit like this that feeds that emotional need, you know, to believe that your vote for Trump was. Uh, you know, the correct one. And so should we just roll through these? Yeah, let me roll through a few of these. So, you know, there's this, this claim that Antifa is quote unquote taking over and the evidence provided was basically that a bunch of anarchists in Portland had like a really bad protest. Protests on the West Coast taking a violent turn. Rioters burned American flags. They burned Joe Biden flag. They smashed windows and vandalized an ice building. You know, we're going to we got a lot of feedback that people want us to talk about what Antifa is, et cetera. So we will make sure that in future podcasts we go through that. Um, but I'll say this just on this claim. You know, this is a group of anarchists that Biden opposes. They had signs at PolitiFact point to that were anti-Biden. And this was this has been a protest and a in many ways, a violent demonstration that's been going on since, you know, way before. During- it's a riot. Right? Yeah. I mean, we should call it what it is. It's I mean, that's I don't want to I don't want to walk into that criticism by the right that we call, you know, violence a protest right. on one side, because this isn't either right nor left anyway, but it's a riot. Yeah. And it was going on during the Trump administration and it's continuing into the Biden administration. A- another element of the of the stuff that's going on in Portland that I think is important to point out to people when they bring it up is not only were they saying that uh, they wanted revenge, they didn't want Biden, they wanted revenge. They also attacked the Democratic Party headquarters. Like, so it's okay that, and this is what I would say to people, like, you know, we don't actually have to have every enemy of the country, every every person who acts out against the country, we don't actually have to decide whether they're on the right or the left. Like, some people can just be enemies. Like, the insurrectionists, yes, they were incited by the right. But what we would all prefer is that everybody in politics see them as an enemy of this country, as domestic terrorists, and somebody who, you know, burns down or tries to burn down a party headquarters and wants revenge and wants anarchy, like, that's not on the right or the left. Like, that's an enemy of the United States. I've said this all year. You know, there's this claim that people on the left have a double standard on this. I'm sure there are people on the the left who have that, but I can only say that, and Biden is not one of them, by the way, but I'm against people burning down buildings, attacking innocent people and attacking innocent people's businesses, no matter what your cause is. I'm just against it. And this is like an example where there's not even a strong connection to Biden in any way and quite the opposite. And even if there was, Biden's been pretty consistent in condemning violence uh, and certainly doesn't instigate it. There's this other claim uh, that gas prices are going up. This is part of a larger narrative related to certain policy areas. So like, canceling the Keystone XL pipeline, stuff like that. Now, to be fair, like there is a version of gas prices could go up if Biden does certain things. Like there are certain, there's consequences of wanting to drill less or 
uh, move uh, to more en- energy independence, et cetera. That stuff doesn't play out in a couple of days. And they were claiming that the gas prices were going up 50 cents per gallon, where they actually went up two cents per gallon in that period of time. So I think that's like an easy one to dismiss. But like, keep your eye on the larger debate about fossil fuels, because you know, we should just be honest, there's a consequence of moving away from fossil fuels. They're going to be jobs lost. They're going to, you know, Keystone XL, for example, which there are a lot of jobs. Some of them were temporary, some of them were permanent that are going to be lost if we stop drilling there. And like, we should just be honest about that. I would point to the fact that at the end of this administration or during the midterm elections, just say when somebody's saying jobs are being lost, et cetera, just be like, okay, wait, let's wait till the next election. And then we can assess Biden's record of jobs or not and see what his policies have driven. Like, has he created more jobs from things that he's done or not? We don't, we're not going to gauge this week to week, you know? Well, and what you don't want to do, like a warning to liberals out there is because I, I see a lot of liberals who think that there's something to celebrate about when jobs in oil and gas uh, are lost or when jobs in coal are lost. Like, no. And it's not as, it, and I think we should acknowledge it's not as simple as like, oh, well, they'll be retrained. Like, look, it's, it's not anywhere near the numbers of jobs that the, that like this post and the other misinformation is claiming it's like 50 jobs, but you know, that's 50 people who are going to lose their jobs. And I think that you have credibility with somebody when you acknowledge like, that's a problem. It's not so great of a problem and so great of a number that the the larger reasons for, for doing this and for trying to move toward clean energy and that sort of thing shouldn't be gone after. And we should absolutely go to work to make sure that people who are displaced from those kind of jobs, that we we move them into other opportunities. But like, don't be insensitive about it. Yeah. Don't be a jerk. Don't don't be like, oh, that's fine. We don't need those jobs. Like those are humans and you should remember that. Yeah, I think there's like a very natural human tendency to see like a Ben Shapiro or somebody weaponizing this stuff uh, in bad faith. And then you want to be like, no, jobs aren't being lost. But like when you do something like cancel a Keystone XL pipeline, there are people working on that that are not going to be working on it the next day. And you can't teach them the code in 24 hours. <laughs> you know, like that's right, like a real exactly. thing that we just need to be honest about. Um, there are a couple other quick things here. There's this meme out there that everybody's, I'm sure, has had to deal with in some form or another about Biden having to make uh, National Guard troops sleep on the floor of a parking garage during the inauguration. I looked into this pretty extensively. They did have to sleep on a, a floor of a parking garage. It was not because Biden ordered them to. It just seems like a screw up within the National Guard itself and the Capitol police who seem to miscommunicate something about them, like these troops sleeping in the Senate offices, et cetera. But it's not something Biden ordered. Or knew about. I mean, yeah. the the Capitol police went on record saying that they don't think there were any members of Congress who, I mean, let alone ordered it, who were even aware that it was happening. Um, and then let me say, like, look, if somebody made National Guard troops sleep on a floor in a garage, like, yeah, that was uncool and, you know, unthinking and whatever. I promise that those troops have slept on a freaking floor before. Okay. Like, I mean, it's, and they were probably irritated about it, but like, they weren't like, oh my God, I can't be-. like, you know how much time you spend in the army just waiting for things and you just lay on a floor? Like, I've slept on a lot of floors, indoors and outdoors. I ain't saying like, it's no big deal that that happened. I'm just saying like, it ain't the scandal of the century. Like we sent people to war without armor. Like, can we, can we get some freaking perspective on this, please? Yeah. There's a, a lot of these that I'm trying to mention are part of a wider narrative. So I'm trying not to like mention yeah. like one-offs, the wider narrative here. And it was combined with this, this meme that the, the troops were turning their back on Biden as he was going through, which I'll talk about in a second. No, I didn't even see that. Yeah. One. That's such horseshit. Yeah. And it's, it turns out yeah. to be, yeah, they, they, 
they turn their back as part of just like that's how you secure yeah, something. They're securing it. Yeah, it's like I you mean, know. you don't even have to tell me. I haven't even seen the meme. I can instantly tell you that if I had been, you know, if I were still in the guard and I were mobilized and sent there, I would be under no illusions that I would be watching the inauguration. I would understand that I would be in 360 security facing out. Like you don't even have. I don't know anything about this, and I can already tell you that's what happened. Yeah, it's just the wider narrative is that the troops hate Biden. Now, last time I checked, it was a Military Times poll during the election that had Biden winning a majority of soldiers, right? Yeah. First first time in many, many years that the Democrat was projected to actually win the majority of active duty votes from soldiers, which I, I may have said on the pod before, but I want to point out the military doesn't lean conservative because it's the military. The military leans conservative because if you show me any workplace in the United States where it is disproportionately drawn from the Midwest and the South and four out of five people who work there are men, then it's going to be disproportionately conservative. So the fact that the military voted more for Biden than for Trump means that a whole lot of people turned against their ancestral Republican roots and voted opposite of their parents and their brothers and their sisters is what happened. Right. And I think this is the way to attack this kind of stuff, which is put it, situate these claims within larger trends, because almost always they're related to a larger trend or a larger storyline that the that whatever forces lurking in the background are trying to tie together a narrative. And so there are two ways to attack that narrative. One is it is in the concrete sense of what, what the exact claim is. And then the other is to get at the larger truth that they're trying to tell. And I think it's important to go both ways. And, you know, it's it's a, it's like going to the gym, like every couple, you know, every couple of weeks or every week, it's important for us to keep going back to these and build kind of like the strength and muscle memory to take these kinds of things on. And, and over time, you'll just be adept and you'll be like, all right, yeah, I know that specific claim and I know the larger thing you're trying to say and I can I could operate on both levels. Good point. That is exactly the way to do it. So there's some bad faith stuff and some misinformation. And then I want to pivot to, and and every week or so, I want to I want to get to some of the good faith arguments that are out there. And so there are people, some of which we had on this podcast, I think Mike Murphy is an example of one of them, who are people who, who were part of our coalition uh, that elected Biden, who are critiquing Biden's move from um, what, what we call equality to what we call equity. Uh, and there, there's a sizable enough group, I think, both within our coalition and certainly in our country, who are uncomfortable with using uh, group identity too much to dictate policy and giving people what they view as special privileges within government based on their group identity. And I, and I think the distinction here, the, the way that the critique is going is that equality, as it was understood, is equality of opportunity, which I think most of these critics support. And then they're viewing equity as equality of outcome, uh, which they do not support. And there's a big debate raging here. People like Andrew Sullivan, you know, like pretty notable anti-Trumpers um, are starting to take on Biden over this. How do we handle this? This is like a big intra, intra-coalition fight. There's a, definitely an outside of coalition fight from people who, some, some of whom are not well-intentioned, but there's definitely an intra-coalition uh, fight raging about this, or at least starting. How do we handle this? What I like about this is that it is reminiscent of what the larger debate in this country used to be, right? Like this used to be the left-right debate, and a good indication of how much the coalition has expanded is this is now 
a, a debate happening within the coalition, right? So that's that's a good sign. It also is a pretty good demonstration of how extreme those outside the coalition actually are at this point. But to me, I don't make a distinction really between equity and equality because I don't, and I know this is how they characterize it, but I don't think of it as a difference between equality of opportunity and equality of outcome because to me, that's not the debate we're having. Like when when you're trying to rectify um, or or create some justice around past injustices, which is basically like affirmative action. Like if when you're trying to do some version of affirmative action when it comes to you know actual resources, like where the COVID vaccine is going to go, where uh, you know investment money in communities is going to go, like yeah, that's equity and not equality, but it's in order to have a shot at equality of opportunity, right? And what this makes me think of is I can remember many times in, in Missouri politics having people say to me about, you know, parts of St. Louis or parts of Kansas City. And this is not just conservatives. This is, you know, Democrats as well, who would say, well, you know, what's really needed is the black community, its leaders really need to step up. And that used to just really irritate me. And it also was a pretty big giveaway, a tell that you hadn't spent much time in the black community because there's no shortage of leaders stepping up. What there is a shortage of is money. There's a shortage of resources and investment. And so you can have all the rules you want about you know it, it being equal opportunity uh, for folks. You can have all the laws you want. But the fact is like, if if there's no money in your community and if there's a lack of a tax base in order to put a, a really quality education on the table for somebody, well, then you, if that's not a quality of outcome, that's a lack of a quality of opportunity. And at the end of the day, like you can have leaders in a community step up all you want, but without money behind it, there's nothing they can do. Yeah. I, I think that this operates on two levels, right? So a lot of the, the folks making these claims Point one they make is that they're not allowed to even have this conversation. That's what that's what they say. Now, I want to acknowledge that I've been in in some rooms where that's true, like where people get shut down and there's only one point of view. Uh, there's a certain version of the left where that has been true in the past. You know, majority 54 is certainly not that. We've had on my brother who's made this argument before about not wanting to be treated um, in a group, but wanting to be treated as an individual. Um, Mike Murphy certainly made that claim. We're now bringing up Andrew Sullivan's argument. This is something that we we're not afraid of this debate. Number one, I and I and I want to invite people into that conversation. I think it's really important for us. In, in, so, rule number one for me as as an intra party or intra coalition debate is we need to model tolerance. Something that we've talked about before, which is I think it is okay for somebody to have a view where they're more uncomfortable than I am, and I'm probably more uncomfortable than a lot of people on the left. Uh, on this, but like that there's like a, a, a range of ideas about how do we treat group classification? Because I don't think it's an easy question, right? I don't think it's an easy question to decide, hey, we're going to we're gonna do things to remedy this injustice for this group, uh, and we're going to give that group special treatment. I don't think it's an easy question about where to draw the line between that group and others. I certainly have very strong opinions about doing that over certain historical injustices like slavery. And this is this is largely what the Supreme Court has said. You know, it says that if you have a compelling state interest, which, for instance, like remedying the injustice of slavery is as compelling as, a, as an interest as you can have, you can give special treatment to groups based on race, alien, uh, alienage and, and national origin uh, if you can't find a less restrictive way to do it. And that's kind of where we've been. Right. Uh, but I just rule number one is like, let's be 
let's be tolerant of this debate for people who are doing it in good faith. Uh, and then two is examine your assumptions on this and engage the debate for real. Like, uh, and I think like, you know, on our podcast, we're trying to do this, right? Which is to, when my brother says, here's the experience of Asian Americans and here's what I'm worried about for my son. I don't dismiss that. I, I hope that people listened to that and said, you know what? Like they weren't defending a position. Like I was legitimately listening to my brother who I know is not just making this up to try to make an argument. It's something he's legitimately worried about. And I hope that's how people move forward in this debate, which is to say, don't dig in. You know, if, if somebody is giving you good reason to believe that they're doing this in good faith, examine your assumptions alongside of them. Maybe they'll move and maybe you'll move too. And, and maybe that's what this whole project is about. We always say how important it is to personalize uh, things, and it is. But the uh, other side of that coin is that when someone offers you their personal experience, you don't attack their personal experience. Like that, that is going to be very counterproductive. You acknowledge it, you take it into consideration, and then maybe you share yours or you give them another way to potentially think about it. But what you don't do is say, well, you forming that opinion based on that personal experience of yours, that's not okay. You're not woke. You're a racist. Like that's not going to get anybody anywhere. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think like people on the left need to understand that like if you believe, for instance, in equity as like somebody like Ibram Kendi believes, right? He, he has this quote that the only remedy for past discrimination is present discrimination, right? I want people to understand that just because you believe that doesn't make that something that the people you need to move are going to believe overnight. That is a hard thing to convince a lot of people of. And I think Obama's really good on this, which is like, you have to do the work. If that's what you truly believe, getting somebody to believe that, that if you're using Kendi's uh, framework, that they are then going to be subject to present discrimination requires that work that we talk about, the idea that it may not be your fault, but it's your responsibility. And just how much work it takes to get people to buy into that is not something that's just going to happen overnight. It's going to take uh, a larger civic reawakening in this country. All right, for Grab an Oar, uh, don't have an organization for you this week. We just figured we haven't mentioned the T-shirt in a while. And honestly, I actually put it on. It kind of made it up to the top of the pile last night in my in my drawer. And I, I put it on. And I said to my wife, this is, this is not something I'm just making up now. I said, you know, this is actually a really good T-shirt. So, you know, you can start conversations like the one that we just had. And you can start them with your family and friends by getting a Grab an Oar T-shirt. Uh, you can go to wondermedianetwork.com slash bonfire, wondermedia network.com slash bonfire and of course you can always leave us a voicemail which good chance it, you know we'll play it on the show and respond to it 508-687-2589 508-687-2589 i'm at jason candor on instagram and twitter lots of good content there right now because i just got a case of new green pepper cholula oh, such it's so delicious ravi has all the good airstream content going at ravi m gupta on twitter and instagram and our show is at majority 54 on twitter remember we all have a platform make sure to use yours today majority 54 is a wonder media network production it's produced by grace lynch and Edie allard theme music provided by kemet coleman special thanks to diana kander hi listeners it's robbie with a question for you what if instead of being on the brink of disaster we're on the cusp of a better world for that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas 
dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.